Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. going to attempt to have some fun for at least the first hour of this program this afternoon. I'm Greg Mackling. He's Tristan Field-Jones in for vacationing. Brett McGarry. It's about time. It's been a heavy couple of days. We had so much news and and it's time to lighten it up a little bit, I think. It's not Friday yet, but it's Thursday, so what the heck. But we can see it from here. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Billy Gardell. You know him from Mike in Mike and Molly, the sitcom. I, I I have to admit, didn't watch a ton of that program, but I'm a mm-hmm. huge fan of Billy's stand-up. He's hilarious. Yes. We get to visit with him just after 1.30 this afternoon. He's appearing in uh, Winnipeg at the Club Region Event Centre. It's actually June 25th, so it's coming up quite quickly mm-hmm. next weekend. Ten days, so yeah. We will uh, visit with Billy and... Later on this afternoon, Carolyn Clausen. It's Thursday afternoon, so Carolyn's in the house. We're going to talk about how taking a vacation can save your life. And we're also going to talk about how do we encourage foreign investors to come and invest in real estate here in Winnipeg and in Manitoba. But to kick things off, Jeff mentioned just before we came on the air that in Los Angeles, they are going to light up the sky with the bat signal tonight. Adam West, the original Batman series, a big part of my youth. I met Adam West Back in, I think it was 1974 or 75 Mm -hmm. at the convention center, part of World of Wheels. I have his autograph, kind of cool. He just signed it, Batman. (laughs) (laughs) I used to to watch the old Batman episodes as a kid once in a while when they were on the Saturday morning cartoons, cartoon block, obviously not a cartoon, but uh, I used to watch them from time to time. So uh, even as a kid growing up in the 90s, I knew about Adam West and... You know, the original Batman theme and all that stuff. Yeah, well, there there was nothing better. And you had to get home in time for, you know, in time from school to catch it at 4 or 4.30 when we were kids. So we'll talk, uh, we're going to talk about the best TV duos of all time and your favorite TV duos. We want you to get in on this conversation. Send us a text. Mm -hmm. You're very good at doing that. 204-780-6868. So we will thank you in advance for sending your text, but we'd love to hear you on the phone, 204-780-6868. That way Savannah Piers can get your pick, and then maybe she can play a clip that lines up with your pick if you give us a call. Yeah. There, there's the enticement for you to give us a call and tell us about your favorite ever TV duo. What was yours? Well, you know, Tristan? I had a couple of them that were that were pretty good. I must admit, I don't watch a ton of television. I was, uh, and uh, a bit of a backstory to this, Greg, uh, my family, when we used to live in Norwood, were the first ones to get cable internet. And so the t- TV always played kind of a secondary role. So ever since I was a kid, I never watched a ton of TV. Having said that, in the age of Netflix, I watched uh, several programs on there. And I thought, Greg, uh, we had a great discussion on this, but I figured uh, one of my favorite TV duos uh, uh, from an animated series when I was growing up and see if you can guess. Chief, mate, what do you want to do tonight? Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky I and should the Brain. Be, I should be too old to know who these guys are. Yeah. But I love the Animaniacs. Hilarious. Yeah. Especially, you know, on one of those days where you'd had a rough night before. Nothing like a little Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain. Absolutely brilliant. And, of course, people need to realize Steven Spielberg 
had a heavy involvement in the Animaniacs and the, all yeah. the cartoons in that series. Very he, clever. Very good he choice. He says so in the title card Steven Spielberg presents. And I used to watch them as a kid all the time, and I, I loved them. I thought they were so... Uh, they were so crazy, but uh, that was one of the first ones that came to mind for me anyway, Greg. How about yourself? Well, for me, let's go back to the original point and form of the conversation right off the beginning. Adam West as Batman. The game's up, Riddler. As a duly deputized agent of the law, I place you under arrest for armed robbery. Snap on the bat cuffs. You've got me, Batman. <laughs> what the... <laughs> it's too delicious. I even gave you a tip-off. Batman, you've made a mistake. Can't you let he Robin say something? Cross. What? I tell oh, you, it belongs got a word to in. him. He lent it to me for a show. <laughs> but Mr. Peel, we saw him take it from you at gunpoint. So Batman and Robin, the original series, nothing really like it before or since. So campy. Really yeah. bringing a comic book to life with all the color, the vivid color at the time, including the uh, the balloons and the whop and the wham and the bam and the boom and the bubbles and everything when they were fighting. Almost like they were censoring it, but having fun as well. Uh, just brings back such terrific memories, uh, Batman and Robin well, from the original series. And you know what I find really interesting, Greg? Uh, just a change in generations. You look at the campy, colorful uh, original Batman series compared to the Christopher Nolan trilogy, as an example, or Batman versus Superman. And it's amazing to me how much in tone uh, the adaptation of that character and that franchise has changed over the over the decades. Well, I can remember going to see the first iteration of Batman on the big screen. I guess it was in like in the 88 or whenever oh, it was. Oh, with uh, Michael Keaton. With Michael Keaton, right? Well, it was so dark. Yeah. Not expecting that in any way. This is before the age of the internet. Yeah. And so really the only hint were from reviewers and newspapers. And so if you wanted to sequester yourself from other people's opinions on movies, it was fairly easy to do. Mm -hmm. And so we went on opening night. I can remember going with a bunch of buddies of mine to go and see it. And we were, I wouldn't say disappointed, but kind of sad. That it was so dark. It was very good. Michael Keaton was good. And yeah. of course, Jack Nicholson just, you know, brought the screen to life with his rendition of the Joker. But yeah, we were expecting and hoping for something a little bit more campy. And of course, we got something very, very serious, very dark, in fact. Uh, another one, and so I played kind of one of my favorite childhood duos here, Greg. Uh, I would have to say uh, another one of my favorite TV duos from a much more modern series is the reimagining, if you will, of Sherlock Holmes and John Watson. And here's a clip from that series. Is that it? Is that what? When he just met, we're going to go look at a flat. Problem? We don't know a thing about each other. I don't know where we're meeting. I don't even know your name. I know you're an army doctor and you've been invalided home from Afghanistan. I know you've got a brother who's worried about you, but you won't go to him for help because you didn't prove of him, possibly because he's an alcoholic, more likely because he recently walked out on his wife. And I know that your therapist thinks you're limp psychosomatic, quite correctly, I'm afraid. It's enough to be going on with, don't you think? The name's Sherlock Holmes and the address is 221B Baker Street. That's the that's one of the first sentences uttered by Sherlock Holmes in the BBC reimagining fabulous series, by the way. And uh, the uh, John Watson in this particular 
uh, iteration is an Afghan, uh, Afghan or Iraq? I forget what it was. Well, you there. just mentioned Afghanistan. Afghanistan. There we go. And uh, he's a vet. There, so uh, I never knew what Watson's first name was. John I thought Watson. It was, I thought it was Mister. <laughs> that's, I just Watson. learned that now. Yeah, I didn't know it was John Watson. I just thought it was Mister because he always called him Mister Watson. Mm-hmm. Even when I would read the books, I would just you know imagine uh, this British accent uh, speaking to Mr. Watson. Our first text message came in before we even came on the air, Tristan. Oh, yeah. And I want to read it verbatim here. Hey, guys, for me, my pick for crime fighting duo are Baba Louie and El Kabong. You have to be a certain age to know who these guys are. Come up, train. Kabong! Olay! Stick him up, stagecoach. <laughs> El Kabong was uh, not Rocky, not Bullwinkle. Bullwinkle. Bullwinkle? Not Bullwinkle. Quicks Draw McGraw. He was Quick Draw McGraw's okay. alter ego. El Kabong and Bob a little Louis. bit before my time, so I'm kind of drawing a blank here. These cartoons actually come like almost from before I was born. They were just getting yeah. popular. There was, uh, there was of course, Yogi Bear and Huckleberry Hound and all those. Hanna-Barbera car- cartoons. I think they were Hanna-Barbera. I'm pretty sure they were Hanna-Barbera. Yeah, Quick Draw McGraw's alter ego was, in fact, El Kabong. So that was a lot of fun. Thanks uh, for that text message, Herb. We appreciate that very much. We got uh, we got Dave texting us. Way back in the Stone Age, my favorite duo was Abbott and Costello. Fell off my dinosaur many times laughing at them. <laughs> that's an honest, that's an honest take well on, done, the, Dave. On, the, uh, on, the, on the topic. Hey, you know what? Oh, Calvin and Hobbes. There we go. I, have they ever been animated in a um, series in any way, shape, or form? Have they only been in the comics, comic strip? Has there been a movie, Calvin and Hobbes? I don't know if they've been animated. That's a good question. I know they felt very real to many people, and it was a brilliant series, but I don't know if that was ever on TV or animated in any form. Every once in a while, Brett McGarry likes to draw back the veil of darkness as it were, oh, no. into the world of radio and what goes on around here. Here is, uh, I would say, sort of the consensus pick from our younger staffers in the 680 CGOB slash global newsroom. The ambiguously gay duo, they're on evil, come what may. They're fighting all crime to save the day. They're extremely close in an ambiguous way. They're ambiguously gay. From Saturday Night Live, voiced by Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell. That's back tremendous. In the day. Yeah, that, that they were. <laughs> it was uh, just a way to give the give the folks at Saturday Night Live the cast a little bit of a break by having that animated feature. Uh, but it took on a life of its own, and I'm surprised they ever made a full length movie out of that. Yeah, you know, Lauren Lauren Michaels was famous for giving the reins uh, to writers and saying, hey, turn this into a movie. Um, there have been some bad ones over the year. I don't know how bad that one could have actually have been. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> you know what, Greg? We've been blabbing for a while. There's plenty of people sending us texts, and if you want to give us a call, 204-780-6868, 204-780-6868. Give us a call, and I think maybe after the break, uh, we should take some calls and read some more texts. Would love to do that. Love to hear from you. It's one sixteen on this Thursday afternoon. Decidedly cloudy. It's cool out there. We'll get you up to date on the latest weather forecast as we move through the afternoon. I'm Greg. He's Tristan. In for Brett.
So we do not want to hear about your least favorite radio duos. Right. We want to hear about your favorite TV duos in honor of Batman and Adam West, Batman and Robin, Adam West tonight in Los Angeles. They will shine the bat signal in the honor of the now late Adam West and in honor of our visit with Billy Gardell from Mike and Molly uh, coming up at 1.35 this afternoon. I'm Greg. He's Tristan. Uh, we are getting so many great texts here, Greg. Uh, uh, you know what's uh, a co- one that uh, completely uh, surpassed my radar, if you will, and yet I can't believe I didn't think about this, Mork and Mindy. Nanu, Nanu. Tremendous uh, show. And again, I believe I believe that was the earliest uh, sort of media appearance, if you will, that Robin Williams was involved in before he went on to movies, right? Well, Robin Williams actually, Mork showed up in a Happy Days episode. Okay. And kind of freaked uh, the Fonz, Henry Winkler, out. And then that was sort of a a screen test to see how he would do on the air because he'd been doing stand-up for a long time. And he just channeled his inner child and turned all his energy into this character, Mork. And then Mork and Mindy became a thing. And, of course, he aged backwards. He came to Earth in this egg. And it was kind of cool. It was a great show. We had uh, a couple people say Starsky and Hutch. Oh, did you say Starsky and Hutch? We did say Starsky and Hutch. Where's the volume for Starsky and Hutch? Is it coming? There it is. Not much of a distinctive opening theme by any stretch. But I saw the other day one of those Grand Torinos painted up with the red with the white stripe on Lager Modier. There's a couple of those yeah. around town after all these years. And uh, David's David Soul, and I can't remember who the other guy was. Who was the other guy in Starsky and Hutch? Let us know. We have a bunch of phone calls here. Let's go to Raven. She's been waiting uh, the longest. Or is it Raven he or she? Raven? Hello? We're going to go back on hold here. Are the, 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 phone, the phones are potted up? Wayne, we're going to go to Hello. Wayne. Wayne, your favorite uh, TV duo. Mine? Yes, yours. Hello. Yes, your favorite TV duo, Wayne. Oh, uh, Bowser Rathbone and Doctor Watson, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Yes, Ray and uh, Laurel and Hardy, and Bugs Bunny and Yosemite Sam. <laughs> yeah, there's a good one. <laughs> I love oh, yeah, it. Far as I, yeah, don't don't be offended, but far as I'm concerned, Batman, Bruce, uh, what's his name? Adam West. Yeah, Adam West. Uh, no offense, but stinks. I saw once on TV, once on his series, and I never watched it again. Fair enough, and Wayne. Then, Lots of people have felt that way. Yeah. He wasn't uh, the world's greatest actor by any stretch of the imagination. Hey, we don't have Brett McGarry in the studio, but we have a Brett on the line. Brett, your favorite TV duo? Yeah, let's go back to the early 60s. After school, going home, watching the uh, Lone Ranger and Tonto. Lone Ranger yeah, Got a couple Tonto. people texting us that one. You got yeah, Paul. <laughs> also had good music to start it off with. William Tell Overture. You got it, man. William Tell Overture, I believe. Yeah. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate yeah. it very much. Have a good afternoon. Yeah. Is uh, Raven still there, Savannah, or should we move on from Raven? Let's try Raven one more time. You there, Raven? No. We're going to say goodbye to Raven. Thanks for calling in. Michael Paul Glazer, by the way, mm. was Starsky. Uh, I believe he was Starsky and David Stoll, by the way. Bo and Luke Duke. The General Lee, 
the general yee-haw, as we used to call it in our house, the way they used to jump that car over over uh, different obstacles along the way as they were trying to elude Roscoe Bico train. <laughs> we had somebody text in here saying, SpongeBob and Patrick, but I'm not as old as you folks. <laughs> but guess Ouch! What, uh, actually, SpongeBob and Patrick, I think, are top 15 of... Rolling Stones' top 50 best TV duos of all time. We had somebody else here say, how about, uh, Kristen here saying, how about Jerry and George can't talk duos without Seinfeld and Costanza? Nice. That's that's a classic for sure. Mulder and Scully. Somebody else saying Pinky and the Brain backing up your pick. Would that be your top pick, Tristan Field-Jones? For duos? Ooh. That would be tough because I really like uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes and, and Watson. How about, how, how, did you ever? You watched Mash. Every good Winnipegger watched watched oh, yeah, Mash. I've seen, at, oh, for sure, I've seen at, a few at episodes. At ten o'clock, yeah. yeah. BJ Honeycutt and uh, Hawkeye Pierce. Yep. Uh, that would be right near the top of the list. Pinky in the Brain mm. again. Uh, Wild Bill Hickok and Jingles. Oh my gosh! I don't even know what show that is. You're gonna have to to tell us. Who knows that? Wild Bill Hickok and Jingles. I don't know who that is. Huh. We're learning something every day. We are. We love it. That's why we uh, open the phone lines and invite your text message, 204-780-6868. We're quickly running out of time. Simon and Simon, another great duo from uh, late 1970s, early 80s mm-hmm. television. We had somebody also mention uh, uh, Wayne and Schuster, a uh, classic Canadian comedy duo. I actually remember watching them as a kid on... Uh, I don't even remember where where that would have been on. CBC? Yeah. Johnny Wayne and Frank Schuster. Yep. yep. I think they had the longest running TV show, uh, certainly on Canadian television, but uh, uh, absolutely uh, pure Canadiana. Yeah, for sure. They weren't necessarily that funny, but, you know, back at that time, it made for good television. Let's go to Kevin real quick before we run out of time. Kevin, your favorite TV duo? How about Crockett and Cubs on Miami? Yeah, Bikes? baby. Ah, right, Kevin. Good the call. Music, <laughs> the music, the car. It was a beautiful thing. I love it, man. And uh, I used to uh, stay home Friday nights when I should have been home out with my friends and and uh, having a few beverages and watch Miami Vice. Thanks, Kev. Appreciate that, man. Have a good afternoon. Let's go quickly to Dawn. I want to get as many calls as we can. Of course, the phone lines ring off the hook as soon as uh, yeah. we're up at the end of the segment. Dawn, your favorite TV duo? Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. We're going back a ways. Dawn, thank you for that. We appreciate it. You have a good afternoon, and we'll have time for exactly one more call if uh, we can get to it. I don't have a name here. Doug. Doug, your favorite TV duo? I was thinking of Penn and Teller. Penn oh, Teller. very good. Yes, those exactly. guys. And they've done everything from the magic shows to uh, almost investigative work where they've they, they looked into all sorts of things and, and the, the Fool Us show where uh, magicians uh, compete. That one's really good. Yeah, Penn and Teller, great duo. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Thanks, buddy. We need uh, just about 20 seconds here to run through Don Cherry and Ron McLean, <laughs> Tim Conway and Don Knotts. Uh, Balky Bartokamus and Larry from per- Perfect Strangers. 
Uh, oh, what a crazy list. Yep, I think we'll have to, we, we had so many uh, texts here, we'll have to read them later <laughs> Rusty, on in the show. But Rusty the Rooster and the Friendly Giant, absolutely oh, yeah. love it. Keep them coming. We'll uh, pick up on this topic a little bit later on. And when we come back, we're going to visit with Billy Gardell. He is uh, Mike of Mike and Molly. He's coming to Winnipeg next week, and uh, you'll want to stick around for that. He is absolutely hilarious. Hopefully, we can uh, get you laughing as we continue through the afternoon. I'm Greg. He's Tristan. It's Mackling and McGarry on 680. CJOB. We are patiently waiting for uh, Billy Gardell to give us a call so that we can promote his show coming up on June 25th. That's at the Club Regent Event Center. Billy Gardell is uh, better known, I think, for most people, not as a stand-up, but probably as the other half of Molly and Mike and Molly, uh, the long-running CBS uh, situation comedy with uh, McCartney. What's her first name? I'm sorry. I'm, you're asking somebody who, <laughs> who hasn't Saturday watched Saturday Night Live. Melissa McCarthy. There we go. Melissa you said McCarthy. You call her, her McCartney. I did. Melissa McCarthy. Gotcha. Okay. And I'm purposely, I've been purposely not even thinking about her because I am positive with Melissa McCarthy's popularity, in particular with the Sean Spicer imitation on Saturday Night Live. Uh, we're not bringing Billy on here to talk about Melissa McCarthy. We want to talk about Billy. Of course. So I've been kind of purposefully keeping that part of the conversation out of the vernacular and my own vernacular. So I apologize. Uh, but I have, do have, uh, one question just in case I can feel and sense the idea that maybe we can go down that road. But, uh, you pulled out a prime of a, a good clip of Billy's as it pertains to phones and young people. I think the young people listening right now can relate to this, and I know the older people yeah. can. People my age look at technology like, yeah, I can't figure that out. <laughs> Just turn the radio on or something. I don't, <laughs> I don't believe in all those buttons, man. And let me tell you something. If you're under 25 and you use your cell phone a lot, I want you to do me a favor. For two hours a day, I want you to put your phone in your drawer. That way you remember how to hold a conversation. <laughs> I love the delivery at the end of that line. That's what makes the joke right there. It's the delivery. Because everything he said there is 100% factual. And as, you know, as someone who is in his 20s, I see it all the time with, uh, with people my age. And I've, I've learned to, as addicting as your phone or mobile device can be, I have learned to restrain myself because, and maybe that's partly because I work in radio, um, I really value the face-to-face conversation with people. I have to admit that I am as bad as any teenager as it pertains <laughs> to, to holding a conversation without looking I, at I my sh- phone. You and I have conversations all day long yeah. where I'm like, Tristan, I'm not ignoring you. I'm simply multitasking. There are only so many hours in the day. So it looks as though our friend Billy Gardell has phone. And that's presumptuous on our part because we've never <laughs> met Billy and to call him our friend would be presumptuous. But Billy Gardell joins us now coming to Winnipeg Club Region Event Center on June 25th. Billy, thanks uh, for taking some time with us today to promote your upcoming visit to our city. Hey, man, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I'm a fan of the Maple Leaf. I, I like you guys up there. You, oh. guys, you, guys gotta, you guys seem to have some things figured out when it comes to human beings. You're impressive. Well, the Maple Leafs oh, boy. might not be the way to go, but, uh, you know, I was going to the first thing on my list of questions was, I know you're born in Pittsburgh. Are you a Penguins fan? Yeah. Oh, 
hardcore. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm sitting in my Penguins hat and T-shirt. I haven't taken it off since we won. Nice. <laughs> He's waving the towel. As you right say, now. they must be. They're still celebrating down there. <laughs> they absolutely are. We, you know, we can't seem to not win it on the road, though. That seems to be our thing. We like to, we like to win it in Game Five on the road somewhere. That seems to be the pattern of this team. But yep. you know what? I'll take it, man. Five that Stanley Cups. Was that, that last game, I thought Murray was going to. Uh, you know, he was being hit like a hornet's nest. I was really impressed. Two shutouts in a row, and you're right, five Stanley Cups for the Penguins, not one one on home ice. So uh, you are obviously, you know, most notable, and, and uh, Mike and Molly's been very good to you, but we didn't bring you on here to talk about that, but to talk about your show a little bit. Oh, and it's I, okay. And I wanted to talk to you about a little bit about uh, your parenting style. You talk about your dad, and I think we all talk about our dads and our parents and how we're parented. We do that on our program here, the vacuum of truth. That is the microphone sometimes <laughs> has me talking about my dad, uh, the way he parented me. Do you parent your son? in the same way your dad parented you? You know, man, I don't think I'm as tough as he was, um, but uh, I, I definitely find myself saying things that he said to me. I hear that coming back to me when I talk to my boy, you know, and it's always funny to hear that stuff that you didn't want to hear when you were a kid, and then it flies out of your mouth, and you're like, wow, did I just... Did I just say because I said so? I did just say that. Wow. <laughs> well, and and in what, you, you, know? you mentioned in one of your segments, you discuss about how you love how your little kid swears. And I have to wonder, does that ever become a little bit of a tug of war of, well, I really shouldn't be encouraging him to swear, but at the same time, I just can't help but love it? No, it was, uh, what I did was when he was younger, I would get him to leave messages on my brother's cell phone. And then when he started to know what they meant, then the wife caught us and we both got in trouble. So we don't do that anymore. (laughs) I think it was my wife, because my wife stayed home with my boys for about 18 months. I've got twins. And I came home one day, and uh, sure enough, one of the kids dropped a, a bucket of margarine on the floor. And about 13 months said, F! F, F, but the full thing. And I looked at my wife, and she just shrugged her shoulders. So she's the bad influence. How about your wife? Do you, do you, do you share the chores? How, do, how does that work? I mean, you're a busy guy. How do you, how do you balance uh, you know what, man? work and family? I always say I'm, I'm very impressed with how unimpressed my wife is. When I, uh, when, when I walk in the door, man, it doesn't matter what I did outside the house. She expects me to be a plugged-in father and a present uh, husband. So, And that's good because it's very grounding, you know what I mean? Because all this is fake and Hollywood anyway so when it's all over you know all you have is your family anyway and she has a great way of kind of putting my feet on the floor about that so pittsburgh's uh, you know had a reputation you and i are the same age when i was growing up pittsburgh was the steel city and uh mm-hmm. had kind of a dark sort of uh persona as it as it related to the rest of north america the steelers of course i think put and helped keep pittsburgh on the map but pittsburgh's undergone a real renaissance of sorts over the last couple of decades how much are, are you related to pittsburgh uh, oh we have a saying here you can take the the boy out of winnipeg but you'll never take the winnipeg out of the boy i have a sense that pittsburgh might be the same situation we have that exact same saying and i think it's what you grow up around and and the work ethic you take with you and, and you know keeping your word and all that stuff but my humor comes from that working class town too which is i think the underlying theme is always don't take yourself too seriously and uh, and I think that's where my humor is based out of. But I will say about the city, it's been incredibly resilient. A lot of our towns down here that were mill towns, you know, they, they after the factory shut down, there was there was nothing 
that that salvaged them. And, and Pittsburgh had a very creative mayor and has a lovely one now, uh, Bill Peduto. But they continue to go, okay, well, what do do we have? We don't have the steel mills anymore. What do we have? And so when the steel mills closed, what they did at the beginning was they said, okay, we got four good colleges. We're going to become a college town. And we catered to that. And then after that, they started building in uh, convention centers for uh, convention destinations. And now they even have a film community up there. And uh, most recently, it's become like a foodie place. We have all these crazy, you know, we're a sandwich in a beer town, but we, we suddenly all have all these uh, these these up-and-coming restaurants that have exploded there. And it's a testament to that city that instead of going, okay, we're, we're done for, they, they kind of turn in the direction, all right, well, what do we got to work with here? And they, they have evolved through that. And it's become a beautiful city, too. I mean, nowadays, you know, people still think of Pittsburgh as, you know, a bunch of steel mill soot in the air. But it's actually beautiful. The rivers have recovered. And it's a really lovely place to, to be. Okay, last Pittsburgh question. I always wanted go to go, and I still want to come to PNC Park and see the Pirates. Beautiful stadium. What is that place? You mentioned food and foodies. I don't know if there's anywhere more popular than the place where you can get the pastrami sandwich with the French fries on it. <laughs> That's Permani Brothers. Permani and the way that started, brothers. yeah, the sandwich is a meat between two pieces of Italian bread, coleslaw, and french fries. <laughs> and the way that started was back in the old days when the guys were getting on the coal barges, they, the Permanis had opened the restaurant, and the guys didn't have time at 4 a.m. to go in there and eat. They were going to have to be at work at 5. So I think the wife actually came up with the idea, and she just took the meat, the coleslaw, the fries, put them between two pieces of Italian bread and wrapped it in wax paper and started handing them out before work. And that's how it caught on. And of course, now we don't have a lot of coal mines open. So people have done the opposite. After they're at the bar, they go there to get that. It's like a get home sober pill. Fantastic. Hey, appreciate uh, you taking us on a tour of your hometown a little bit there, Billy. <laughs> sure, <It's>, man. <laughs> Billy Gardell joins us coming to Winnipeg a week Sunday, June 25th. He's at the Club Region Event Center. And uh, if you've not been there, it's an absolutely beautiful theater, great place to see a show. So talk about, you know, you mentioned that you're well-grounded in, in your hometown. You mentioned your dad. Where else does your comedy come from? You know, I think my stuff comes now from, uh, you know, being a being married for 17 years and getting through that and staying together and holding it together. And then of course, you know, being crazy when I was younger, but more importantly, you know, I got a 14 year old now. So it's, it's, I'm stuck in that place of trying not to be a hypocrite, trying to be truthful, but not be a hypocrite, you know, and it's not always the easiest line to walk. So my show is, uh, you know, I, I swear a little bit, but I don't do anything that's going to run people out of the, the auditorium. My, my show is pretty much what any family can kind of relate to at some point. I, I have to ask, Billy, because I noticed a lot of, uh, personally, when I watch a lot of comedians, you know, the observational comedy is one of the, the biggest uh, uh, areas, if you will, one of the biggest topics. But for me, it's very difficult for a comedian to make that funny to me because more often it's observation. And yet when I watch a lot of your stuff, and again, you, we played the clip where you're talking about young people and their phones, and I, I just noticed I really enjoyed the fact that you can make that those observations humorous. So I have to ask, how, how do you find those funny little things in life that can translate to a wider audience and also not just be observations but be funny as well you know and i think that uh i think that when you try to make humor of something one you have to share a related experience and if you can share an experience that someone's been thinking but hasn't said 
that brings them closer to you. And then I think the honesty of how you feel about it, if you can take it to a place that's funny where you're not being judgmental, then I think it becomes really funny. And I, I think I find that, yes, with the adults my age who are 45 and older, I mean, we're, we're basically illiterate. We think we know how to work computers, but compared to what's coming, we're, we're the illiterates, you know? And I think there's, there's a wonderfulness in admitting that. And I think that goes through with being married for a long time. You know, I think when you can make an observation, it's very true. Like, I always talk about, like, my wife and I have been together 17 years. Like, one of my rules is, we don't go out with couples that are newly in love because they're still in that stupid love and they don't know any better. And that'll just ruin your night. <laughs> you know what I mean? They watch a romantic comedy and they think it's about them. Oh, that's us. That's us. You know, a guy will be all soaked up in the shower and she'll walk around the corner fully dressed and open the door and look in and go, just checking on you. Just checking on you. <laughs> and then he yanks her into the shower and they kiss passionately. Try that with your wife after 15 years. You'll get your eyes cut out. So the idea of just being honest about what goes on in the house, but not in a way where it's only one opinion, it's just my opinion, I think brings the audience closer, and that's how I try to find my stuff. Yeah, and it's not condescending. It's not like, yeah, and this is the way it is, right? There's enough of that in the world, man. We got enough crap in the world. We got enough, you know, I hate experts. I hate people who know everything. Those are the people that I hate, because it doesn't give you any room to think for yourself. And what I enjoy is it doesn't always have to be negative to be funny. That's just my choice. There are people who disagree with that, but that's my choice. Okay, so last one, uh, because we are in awe, we are in disbelief. There are a whole litany of words that we could use to talk about the political situation in your country Oof, right now. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> But I have to know, is there a member of the Trump administration that you're working to perfect in an imitation or or some form of, <laughs> of impersonation? No, I, I think the best I could do is if somebody hit me in the face 10 or 11 times, I could probably play Bannon. But um, <laughs> no, I think Melissa's nailed it with Spicer. I think uh, I, I don't think that can be topped. It's it's spectacular, yeah. and the way it has uh, taken off is it's really unlike anything we've seen in late night television. SNL uh, has really done a great job of of keeping us, at, you know, at ease and and keeping us at the same time. I think informed. Are 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 there some of the comedians that that you're following in terms of this situation that you think are doing this best, Billy? Um, you know, man, I I love to watch uh, John Oliver. I think John mm-hmm. Oliver is brilliant. In, his, in the way he delivers the facts and the absurdity of what's going on right now. And uh, he impresses me very, very much. I would say he's top of my list for guys to watch. That, that's kind of the secret to John Oliver and John Stewart, too. It, they said uh, it wasn't so much the politicians, but it was the absurdity of the system that got them the most humor. And even with the best politicians in charge, there's plenty of absurdity to go around. Yeah, man, nobody's above it, and I, I think it's, uh, you know, when comedians are good at that, I think it's their job to do, to, to do that, to, to point out the absurdities. And we have to get to a place, you know, this country's so shattered right now with this thing, you know, we can't see straight, and, and nobody seems to want to put the common good beyond being right, and that's the part that I hope will heal. Um, this was, you know, this is, I, I did not vote for this guy, you know, but I understand how some people in some small towns did. And it, it I, you know, it's really hard. It's really hard to comprehend the things that could be looked past to let that happen. 
but there's a desperateness here too that we have to address. You know, there's, I think America needs to move forward when it comes to medicine, energy, and we need to kind of get our heads out of our butts and admit that we're not doing things right. And I'm, I'm, I'm worried we're not going to put the common welfare first. I mean, that's in our constitution, the common welfare. And I think we've lost sight of that down here. And, and I'm praying that, uh, I'm praying that we're able to bridge that gap. You know, we have to endure what's going on. And hopefully it will adjust. I like to think there's a silver lining somewhere in there. Maybe it's it got people awake, but what cost? We don't know yet. And uh, I just hope we'll endure. I know that if I tend my storefront and people leave my home feeling a little better than when they came here, I'm doing my job. And so hopefully that spreads. Billy, it's always a challenge to interview a comedian. I want to thank you for uh, going down this tangent and this road with us. Uh, much appreciated, and we look forward to seeing you in Winnipeg a week Sunday. I'm looking forward to it, guys, and thanks for your time. And, and uh, I'm excited because uh, I haven't been able to perform for the Mike and Molly fans up in Canada except once, so this will be my second trip, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Outstanding. Thanks again, Billy. Cheers. Have a good one, guys. Billy Gardell coming to Club Region Event Center June 25th. That's a Sunday night, a week Sunday. Uh, great guy. Yeah. Fantastic yeah, to get great his opinion. Insight to get his opinion on, on different stuff as opposed to just trying to, to yuck it up. And uh, I appreciate him doing that with us this afternoon. He's Tristan. I'm Greg. We'll take a pause. We've got your latest weather forecast coming up next. Je m'appelle Greg. He's Tristan. Bonjour. Uh, you're a former uh, French immersion kid, aren't you? Not a uh, French school. Yeah, I went to an actual French school from uh, until grade eight. So not French emergent, but French. Do you do you miss it? Do you speak it? Do you use it? Oh, I, I speak French uh, all the time. Uh, do I miss my school? No, not at all. <laughs> I but, wasn't but, asking if you miss school. You want to talk about, about going uh, down the rabbit hole? Here we go. Uh, <laughs> Dim the lights. We, we need a little bit. Oh, a therapist is coming in at oh, that's 2.30. Right. Carolyn Clausen will join us. We're going to talk about how taking a vacation can save your life. But before we do that, Alan Asplin joins us in studio. He's president, Judy Lindsay team, real estate. And Alan, we want to appreciate or express our appreciation for you coming down this afternoon. We want to talk a little bit about real estate as an investment. Of course, what's been happening in Toronto and Vancouver uh, is almost legendary now. You know, the rest Infamous of the country is the right word I for think it. I think. could be right. Looking down our noses at a million dollar plus average home price in Vancouver, just under a million in Toronto. And some of that is driven by international investment, in particular into the condo market. Is, is that something that uh, overall, before we talk about the possibility of Winnipeg maybe becoming one of the next markets, is that something that is having a genuine effect on the market, some of the uh, lending practices, CMHC, all these other things that affect the market here in Winnipeg? Are those markets having an effect on Winnipeg? Absolutely, without a question. I mean, all these speculative buyers are coming in there and they're driving prices higher. And so the government starts to look at it and say, well, how can we control this? But they don't really need to control Winnipeg. Winnipeg is very much just a stable marketplace, very natural. We have buyers and sellers here, but we don't have a lot of outside influence like they have in Toronto and Vancouver. So uh, why doesn't the government understand that they may be, uh, in effect, cooling markets uh, that they're not intending to cool and maybe having zero effect on some markets uh, that they're they're trying to slow down a little well, bit? Well, it's a great point, and, and it's obviously been discussed at great length. However, the amount of people that live in Toronto and Vancouver versus Winnipeg is kind of a lot more significant than here. Right. Alan, I just have to ask from, from your perspective – 
uh, as a realtor. I mean, if, if, and I have no experience in the field, but I'm thinking to myself, if I'm in Vancouver and the average price of a house is over a million dollars, I think it was 1.3 million. I must be thinking to myself, how the heck am I going to sell this to anybody? How many people have $1.3 million laying around? I mean, that just, that must make uh, your job much more difficult if you're in a market like that. You would think so. And everyone says the exact same thing. Who affords these houses? If I remember 10 years ago in Vancouver, you could still buy a nice place or $500,000. And at that time, it was like, who affords this $500,000 house here in Winnipeg and a nice house for $100,000? And it's a, and it's not just Vancouver. It's Los Angeles. It's New York. It's London. It's, it's a global. Any kind of major center has these outside influences coming in. sees these highly inflated prices that really aren't realistic for the normal person that, who's making you know forty to $60,000 a year. It just doesn't make sense. What well, do we know about these outside influences? Like, do we do we know who where they're coming from? Who these people are? I mean, how much? It just it sounds like it's some invisible force almost yeah. that we can't do anything about. Uh, it's funny because we like here in Winnipeg, you hear oh Chinese buyers, especially in Vancouver, oh Chinese buyers are coming in. But I have a good friend in in San Diego. His business is based around uh, dealing with German buyers, and he has German investors coming in that buy most of his properties because he speaks German. That's the market he deals in. So it's not just Chinese buyers. It's not just foreign buyers, it's people who want to speculate on investment real estate. And when they're looking at Vancouver and Toronto specifically, they're not looking at how much money they're going to make renting these properties. They're going to look at what's this property going to be worth in 10 years, in 20 years. And because they're in such a nature that they're kind of, they can grow. Like Winnipeg, we can grow. we got lots of fields outstanding. You can go buy more property. There, they're kind of surrounded by the, the mountains. Everyone wants to be downtown, downtown New York, right? Downtown London. That's what people talk about. And they're just not making any more real estate. So prices will inevitably go up. And it's going to go up at a greater rate, unfortunately, than it will here in Winnipeg. You know, I often have this conversation about people that are unenamored with Winnipeg, to, to, to use a word that isn't, a, isn't really a word. Uh, but, you know, have, have grown tired of winters and they, oh, I'm going to move to Edmonton or, or I'm going to move to Calgary or Vancouver to Kelowna. And, you know, there's a difference between living somewhere and having a house there because yeah. I have lots of friends who moved to Vancouver years ago and what they ended up doing was working a ton to pay their rent and they didn't do much living at all. In no. fact, what they did was they worked and slept in Vancouver yeah. and did very little else there. And the other thing that, that people need to realize, Vancouver is one of the most desirable places in the world yeah. to live, not just yeah. Canada. And if you want to go... You can pack up your things and you can be there in 24 hours. You don't need to get a visa. You don't need anyone's permission but your own and your own checkbook. And you can go and you can move there if you can afford to do so. But here we are, little old Winnipeg, chugging away towards yeah. a million people. Like we got to have something going for us here because yeah. moving to Calgary and moving to Vancouver are very easy options if you really want sure. it to be. And we see it here. Like People who live in Winnipeg, a lot of people have cabins. Right. If you lived in Vancouver, you don't have that secondary home more likely because everything you have is going into that house. I mean, that affords us the ability to travel more. Like you said, we can go to Vancouver and stay for the weekend there, but maybe not Vancouver. Maybe it is we want to go to San Diego or we want to go to Arizona for the winter. Because we don't have $2 million wrapped up in our single family home here, it allows us to have that secondary home in Arizona or Texas, wherever anybody wants to go. So that leads us to the article that showed up in, of all places, the Financial Post in a national publication. Manitoba realtors have an answer for foreign home buyers. Send them our way. Gary Marr wrote this yesterday. If Toronto and Vancouver have a problem with international property buyers, Manitoba realtors have an answer for them. Chris Pennycock, the president of the Manitoba Real Estate Association, 
Association said his province is ready to accept more immigrants into its borders and is happy to also take on investors with money coming from abroad. In fact, there is a seminar, five-day international property specialist course for realtors put on by the National Association of Realtors happening right now in Winnipeg. What do you say to that idea, uh, Alan? Well, obviously, the more demand we have for properties here, whether it's local demand or international demand, it's going to drive prices higher, which is absolutely a great thing if you own property in Winnipeg. It's going to make you have more money in a sense. And and with that more money, you can choose to either live here or you can move somewhere else. But right now, it's hard to move from Winnipeg to move to Vancouver, but easy to move from Vancouver back to Winnipeg. And it'd be nice to have more buyers. But the realistic thing is, we're not a, a destination such as Vancouver, New York, LA. Those are where people vacation and there's a lot more investment, a lot more money there. And so from an investment side, you can buy in those areas and get greater capital appreciation over time possibly where the value of your property is going to go up. However, it's very hard to rent properties there and make a good good cash flow. So after you've paid your, your mortgage payment and so forth, if you rent in those cities, a lot of times you're actually losing money. But people will take that risk to lose money on a month-to-month basis just so they can get the capital appreciation over in time. Whereas in Winnipeg, you can rent out your house here and actually make money on a month-to-month basis. So that's where we see a lot of buyers coming from Vancouver and Toronto to buy in Winnipeg because they will make money right away. Uh, now, I have to ask, because we mentioned this, myself and Greg had this conversation earlier in the week about the effect Airbnb is having mm-hmm. on units. And I think, Greg, you mentioned there are, what, close to 3,000 units? 2,300 in- estimated in Toronto that are mm-hmm. not owner-occupied, essentially purchased and used exclusively yeah. as Airbnb uh, locations. Yeah. So that's like 2,300 hotel rooms that are not under the Hyatt or the Marriott. You pick your uh, logo and your flag. Yeah. And so it's a little bit of a disruption, but sure. it's also clearly causing an effect on the real estate market. Absolutely. And it's limiting options in terms of renters. And I used the analogy earlier this afternoon of imagining six Sky Cities that's how just many units Airbnb. we're talking about just yeah. for Airbnb yeah. in Toronto. Well, and, and so I have to ask on the heels of that, since you say people can make profit here by renting, mm. is that a, could that be a concern, maybe not immediately, but five, ten years in the future where there are enough people coming over here to buy property to rent, and we've seen some of the impact that has had in Toronto. Could that at all be a concern if people choose to to, to rent and to have more rentable units in Winnipeg? Yeah, well, the great thing about Winnipeg is that for years and years, we are just a great, stable economy. So from an investment standpoint, people can buy here and not have to really worry about the big swing like they'd see in Toronto and Vancouver. So we won't see, we won't see that 20% increase in price, but we also won't see that 20% decrease in price at the same time. So it, it does provide a great environment. It doesn't matter what's going on uh, with foreign buyers. So we just saw one of our, well, the busiest month ever in Winnipeg in May, highest dollar volume ever, almost $500 million. I think it was only 10 years ago in Winnipeg, we sold a billion dollars of real estate in a year. So things have really changed in this marketplace. And everybody asks me, because I own more than one property, it's where uh, my family has built any wealth quote unquote, that we have has come from our investments in real estate, whether our own homes or rental properties ourselves. So I'm a big proponent of that. But can you help us understand where people are? Where are these people coming from that are buying six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars houses, uh, dozens of them every month? 
here in Winnipeg. They're here buying, in Winnipeg. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I get that exact same question all the time. Who's buying these houses? And the funny thing is, and speaking to foreign buyers, we had a house, a client had a house out in Bridgewater. It's a $1.6 million house. And we were speculating with the client, who's going to buy this? Or what's going to be one of the jets that's going to buy this house or so-and-so celebrity? Ends up being a lady from China bought it for her daughter to go to school. That's who's buying it. That, that, seems, to be, that seems to be the case. It almost always comes back to... Uh, you know the the you know the Chinese or a lot of people from the Southeast Asian countries who have money to spend, they're willing to spend it over here. Well, it's all and, about and, relativity, though, yeah. too, right? And and you know we might not be able to play in those circles, or at least in our mind. And let's face it, you could buy a lot in North End, Winnipeg, about twenty five years ago for nine thousand dollars or free or free yeah. if you're willing to rip the house down, right? <laughs> and put some something on it. Well, I challenge you to find a lot, a 25-foot lot for building an infill house anywhere in Winnipeg now for under 70 grand. That's what it is. That's how dramatic it's changed in, mm-hmm. in 10, 11, 12 years in our city. So uh, just when you think it can't get any better, it continues to grow. I was at a real estate investing seminar before I got married. So it would be 12, maybe 13 years ago. And I'll never forget the individual running the seminar. Ask 300 people who had taken their entire weekend to find out about investing in real estate. How many people thought that Winnipeg was at the apex mm-hmm. of the of the investment uh, bubble or bell, however you S curve, whatever you want to, how you want to demonstrate it? And 90 percent of these people said we're at the top. Well, it was just starting. So uh, that's why, you know, I host talk, talk to the experts on the weekend. We talk about experts. You're the expert. Is this sustainable? Because 12 years ago, I'll tell you, nobody thought no. what was happening then was sustainable. Absolutely. I just had a conversation uh, before coming here with a friend of mine because I had a, a friend who, uh, who lived in London and she bought her first place for $250,000. This would be about 10, 12 years ago. And we we're like, $250,000 for a 700 square foot condo. You're, that's crazy. And that place nowadays would be probably worth over $2 million. You're talking wow. London, England. London, England. Sorry, yeah. yeah. No, that's okay. <laughs> but it, but it, it's just, it's your perception at that one time. It's right. everybody's perception. Like, why would you pay $5,000 more for a house here? That's crazy. Well, if you paid $5,000 more in, in 2005, well, it really didn't matter now. We'll take a break. We'll update the weather forecast as kind of lousy as it is. Yeah. <laughs> but that's our duty to uh, share the good and the bad news, whether it's weather, sports, or news related. He's Tristan. I'm great. Alan Asplin is in the studio. We're talking about real estate, having one of those conversations that I think a lot of us have while having dinner or barbecue or out at the lake with our friends right now. Where's real estate going? Is there an opportunity for international investors here in Winnipeg? Where's the market going to go as we continue here this afternoon? It's Mac. McGarry with guest host Tristan Field-Jones. It's Greg and Tristan in for Brett McGarry on this Thursday afternoon. Carolyn Clausen joins us in just a few minutes. We'll talk about how taking a vacation can save your life. But in the meantime, we're honored to have in studio Alan Asplin is with us. He is the president of Judy Lindsay Team Realty. And we're talking about the real estate market in Winnipeg. Is it sustainable? Will there be foreign investors? I think it's already happening, maybe not on a grand scale, and it's probably just going to continue. Tristan, I know you had a 
question well, for and, Al. And, I, and I'm just uh, thinking back to when Waverly West was initially proposed, uh, <laughs> and uh, they they initially said that only it would fit about the size of Brandon, so close to 50,000 people, mm-hmm. and this was in 2005. And I remember a lot of the reactions back then, people thought, this is ridiculous. Why are we adding so much to the city? And then fast forward, uh, you know, 12, 13 years later, and just over the last five years, according to our own census, we almost added the population of Brandon, 6% growth, I believe it was, is what it was, within Winnipeg city limits. We added basically that population of Brandon and Waverly West isn't even done yet. So Alan, I have to ask uh, if you put, uh, if you try to be a fortune teller here for a second, <laughs> with this, uh, these are rapid population growth, especially for a city like Winnipeg. What impact could that have on the price of real estate? Is that just going to cause things to go up? Because certainly we haven't seen the massive price increases that Toronto and Vancouver have seen, but we've certainly seen those prices go up. So I'd just be curious to see if we keep getting that growth, what your thoughts are on the impact on the real estate market. I think we're definitely going to be seeing growth without question. But if we look historically at real estate, it's always about supply and demand. So even though we can build more houses and at a rapid rate, if the demand's there, we'll keep building and they'll keep on uh, prices suppressed a bit. And right now with a used market, you're kind of limited to how much you can get for it based on what you can go out and buy a brand new house for. Yeah. You know, once upon a time, the rule in Winnipeg real estate, as long as I get what I paid for my house. Mm -hmm. You figured you were doing okay in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, we got what we paid. We were happy with that. But it's a different market now. We're approaching a $300,000 average price. Last month, I think it was $296,000 was the average selling price. Uh, We've got a couple of comments here on text and we can comment on them or not. Just going to throw them into the conversation because they're very astute observations. Uh, I'm glad I bought my house when I did. Paid $76,500 once Again, you're lucky to get a 25-foot lot in an established uh, neighborhood anywhere in the city to build an infill house. Gary says, does a seller have a choice of not selling to someone that is going to rent the house? That's a great question. And funny, we get, uh, not only that, we get uh, clients sometimes requesting, you know, maybe they don't want to sell to a foreign buyer. People if people are interesting out there and they don't want to sell, maybe they don't want to sell to a single person. They want to sell to a family. It has to be a nice family. It has to have two kids. You know, they want to know about who's buying the house because they take a lot of pride in their house and who's going to own it. Ultimately, the seller can do whatever they want to do. Uh, there was a case actually in, in Toronto where the guy, they wrote a, a letter about how, I think it's something to do with like how their kid had cancer and something like this. And the seller ended up taking a $100,000 lower offer to give it to this family over the, the next family. Oh that's that's one of those good news stories for sure. Well, you would so, see that. So you have some options as a yeah. seller for sure, right? Yeah. It, it, is it now? I have to. Uh, you look look at uh, Gary here mentioning. Can you refuse to sell it to someone who won't who wants to rent it out? It's isn't that kind of difficult. I mean, granted, some people might be upfront with that, but ultimately, you don't need to reveal if you buy the property. You don't need to reveal whether or not you rent it out after you've done the purchase, right? Absolutely, you can let it sit there vacant and let the grass grow until the city comes and tells you you can't let it grow anymore. But what we see in other markets, like so we talked about, you know, Vancouver, Toronto, where they limit what you can do it. So we talked about the Airbnb in Toronto is set up where you can't rent out those places. And there's certain condos in the city here too that have those regulations. Mm-hmm. You can't rent those condos. The condo board won't allow you to do it. So a buyer needs to be aware of those restrictions going into it. 
The developers are resistant to put those restrictions in because, yeah. of course, uh, the job of a de- developer is to build a building and to sell all the units within uh, the building. Uh, last one here because we're quickly running out of time. I have been trying to find a house since December. It's very frustrating. Most houses I have been interested in have sold for over asking price and in some cases well over the appraised value and city assessment. We are seeing quote-unquote, bidding warns again, aren't we, Alan? Absolutely. It's, uh, I think it's almost more prevalent now than it was before. Really? Yeah, and that's just demand. So people say, well, it's, I have to pay so much more over. Well, you're not really paying over. You're paying what the house is worth now. So the, in a sense, the houses are worth more than what they're priced at. Well, they're worth exactly what someone's willing to pay. That's it. Yeah. That's what I always <laughs> you tell You say people. that about a lot how, of things. How could it go for that much? Well, mom, it's because somebody was willing to write a check and the bank said that that's okay and we'll lend you that amount of money. All sorts of ways to go with the discussion. Alan, thanks for going down this Thank road, you. this part of the conversation with us. Carolyn Klassen, I know, is standing by. We'll talk about vacations, how they can save your life. When we come back, Tristan Field-Jones has global news and weather at the bottom of the hour and then more conversation. It's Mackling and McGarry, McGarry without McGarry, with Field-Jones on this Thursday afternoon. Greg Mackling, Tristan Field-Jones, and it's Thursday at 2.34. It means Carolyn Clausen is here, therapist with Connexus Counseling, connexuscounseling.ca. See, I'm getting better. Thanks for taking uh, the time as you do on uh, Thursdays, Carolyn. Great to see you. Great to be here. Uh, one of the things about you is the way you light up a room. Your smile lights up a room. You have a certain air about you. But I have to confess that I don't know if your light has ever shone brighter than the two visits that you uh. paid with us in the last six months <laughs> that were immediately following a vacation. Well, and I love that you suggested this um, now in June as people were heading into the summer to talk about vacation. And it gave me a chance to reflect on um, my own experience of vacations. And I'm a person, I have a job, but I also am director of the uh, of the counseling agency, uh, Connexus Counseling. I have a dozen people that work with on my team that I'm trying to manage. There's emails coming in all the time and it's, it's kind of a seven days a week kind of position. And so... Um, it, the, figuring out the balance between work and play is something that I uh, often sort of wrestle with. And part of it is as a person who's in mental health, I have to model it. If I'm going to talk about it, I have to model it. And so I'm often checking in with myself about, am I having a good balance? How can I get a better balance? Um, and challenging myself to make sure that I play enough. Um, and so you're right. I, when I come back from vacations, I am definitely refreshed and definitely readier to engage and work in a different way. And so this topic was a great one to talk about. Today. That was an amazing segue, Greg. I'm still trying to trying, trying to get over that. How you introduced this. It was so smooth. So smooth. I had to highlight that. I'm sorry. I, just... uh, I used to have a grandfather who used to say I was smooth as a stucco bathtub. I think that still applies from time to time. But that this one worked. seemed to this work worked. out. Yeah. Anyway, well, I just derailed everything there. But... Uh, <laughs> I think Greg needs a vacation now after I said that. Well, here's the headline, how taking a vacation can save your life. This was from uh, Global News, our smart living uh, online journalist, um, Marissa Racco, wrote this. To hear Canadians talk about it, taking a vacation sounds like a pipe dream. In fact, it's such a rare occurrence that during and according to the 2016 Vacation Deprivation Survey conducted by Expedia.ca, while the average Canadian would like to have 11 and a half more vacation days per year, they consistently leave three unused days of vacation behind. Now, that may not sound like much when you look around your office, but collectively, they represent, this is staggering, 31 million 
unused vacation days across the country and over 5.5 billion with a B in wages that go back to the employer. What's more, 27% of respondents said they go a year or more without taking a vacation. Well, and it's interesting, all of those stats are based on Canadian vacation time. And Canadian vacation time is actually less than a lot of other countries. Um, The Canadian government only mandates 10 days of vacation time per year. Many people sort of earn more, but that's the minimum. Um, And countries like China, Pakistan, and Indonesia, they mandate more vacation than we do. Um, And a lot of European nations, they mandate at least 20 days. And so when you're not using three days, it's already a small, we're starting with a smaller pie than a lot of other countries, right, where we really value um, work above play. And I think that's something that we as a culture have to think about um, when 26% of Canadians are not using their fully allotted vacation time. uh, We have to sort of look at that. My father-in-law has a saying. And it's pretty strict. He says it's work before play. Work before play. Mm -hmm. And so that means like it's got to be done. What you're doing is supposed to be done before the play. Well, when you have a list of never-ending things to do, Tristan, it becomes impossible sometimes to justify a vacation. How do you justify your vacation? Because you have a very cool, um, shall I say, philosophy as it pertains to taking your vacation days. You don't necessarily take them all in a row. Tell us what you do. Yeah, well, what I, I like to do You didn't know is, where I was going with that. I, I didn't exactly know where you were going because I'm thinking to myself, I have a philosophy? Really? Oh, okay. Um, but uh, my the way I, I, I have a couple of when it comes to that, but let me just say this. I always use my vacation days. Uh, for instance, and, and this year is a perfect example of that. I took a week off in February. Uh, I didn't have a trip planned, didn't have anything planned, but I had four unused vacation days because the year before that, there had been so much overtime and so much extra work that I'd been given a bunch of days off in lieu. And I figured, I'm, you know, I don't have anything to do during that week, but I'm not going to let these vacation days go to rest or, or go to waste, I should mm-hmm. say. And I'll use that to rest. And sometimes what I'll do, and I've been doing this for a couple of weeks now, I, I will, every summer I will take at least two weeks off in a row because I think two weeks gives you a really good time to uh, unwind and decompress. And if I can take that with a long weekend, even better. Uh, but what I will do is if I got days in lieu or, you know, a couple days here, I'll take long weekends. Mm-hmm. So I've taken several Mondays off and that gives me an opportunity to do some day trips to hang out with friends I wouldn't normally see because their shifts are different, that sort of thing. But that, but, but that is very much the way that I operate when it comes to that. We used to have film in Fridays back in the eighties mm-hmm. and the nineties. Yes. Uh, I guess it was the nineties. Uh, we have Tristan Mondays <laughs> here, but it's only Tristan that benefits. So I see you've got a, a book there. What does it say? The, the, the gifts of imperfection. Um, and it's, uh, by Brene Brown. Um, a lot of people know that I always say we are wired for connection. That very much comes out of the research of Dr. Brene Brown. I'm certified in her material as a daring way facilitator. And she has a chapter called cultivating play and rest. And what she talks about, and this is what you were alluding to, I grew up probably similar to you, Greg, in that my dad would say, let's rest or we'll play when the work is done, except that the work never was done, right? And so it felt like there was never time. Uh, And what she talks about is letting go of exhaustion as a status symbol and productivity as self-worth. And when so often our value in our culture is determined by our output it's, it becomes dangerous to take a vacation. It becomes risky to, to play because then it, it, if, if that's what we're basing our value and our worth on, now we've become very quickly valueless and worthless. It's almost like we have to justify those days off. Oh, 
so exhausted. You know, it's just been crazy the last few weeks and I really need a day off as opposed to do, yeah, you know what? It's my uh, three-day weekend coming up. <laughs> That's the way my, I approach my, it. Right, my self-imposed long weekend is coming up and uh, gosh darn it, I deserve it. There's always that tinge of guilt when we're taking time away from work. I don't know the last time you took a sick day, but I can count the sick days I've taken, you know, since I've been back in the worst workforce after my car accident. I feel guilty three hours, two hours, an hour into a, a sick day. Oh, there's got to be something I can do. Right. Mm. And we, we somehow feel like if we're not contributing and if we're not getting things done, if we're not checking things off our to-do list, that somehow we don't have value. That unless we're doing something that... Our, our value is based on what we're doing rather than who we are. And if that's what's going on, then we dare not ever stop to be sick or to play. And it means then that we have to justify or explain or sort of apologize our way, our choices to say, I'm taking a break. You know, Carolyn, it's interesting. And, and Greg, uh, you bring up a really good point there because my approach to sick days and to vacation days, uh, I, I mean, the way I look at it is I never feel guilty taking any of those. I know that I work hard during the week, okay. uh, and I know that I, I contribute enough during the week, so I have no issue taking those off. Uh, I realize that a lot of my colleagues, you know, if I happen to take a sick day because I'm not feeling too well, I know some of my colleagues will have fun with that, which is fine. That doesn't bother me at all. None of my colleagues are definitely Greg who never made fun of me for taking vacation or sick days. <laughs> but anyway, um, and and but I, I I've never quite understood that mentality of, uh, you know, people and or, or a similar thing too. When people will work late one day and they'll refuse to leave early another day. I don't. I, I the number of colleagues here. I've said go home early. If you've worked late one day, go home early. Nobody's going to judge you for that. Nobody's going to say what are you doing? Leave. We know you've worked hard. Go home. And in fact, I've had you know I can think of bosses here who've told me to go home too. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I and I look at that. I think when your management tells you to go home and you're not doing that, maybe maybe it's you. You know, do we need a culture shift? Yeah. Well, I think there's something about we all like to feel valued and important. And I think um, the idea of I can't go home because there's too much to do here. And when we look at why people don't take vacation, one of the big reasons they they felt like they couldn't take vacation was because they were indispensable or there was too much to do. Or if they left, who would get it done or, if you know, the balls would be dropped and somehow, you know, life would fall apart. We like to feel valued and when we make, when we feel as if we're indispensable or when we create a position so that we are indispensable, then we we feel that sense of value and we feel that sense of importance. And I think the challenge as a culture is to say you are valued for who you are, not for what you do. And we value you enough that we want you to take the breaks. I value myself enough that I want to take breaks. And we can get in, you know, after the commercial break, we can talk about the value of, <laughs> now I'm segueing. Oh, my. Um, we can talk about the value of vacation, not just for yourself and your own mental health, but for you and your workplace. As prescribed by <laughs> Carolyn Clausen, we will take a commercial slash weather update this break. This is Carolyn Clausen with Mackling and McGarry here on 680CJOB. <laughs> clearly driving the ship today. I love it, Carolyn. We'll take a pause. And uh, please don't get mad at us when we read this weather forecast. Uh, it's not too terrific, but uh, we will persevere. It's uh, Bomber Game Day, by the way. Our coverage gets underway at 6 o'clock with the pregame show. Bob Irving, Doug Brown will uh, get you inside the game and uh, let you know what you need to look for because the only way to see or experience the game will either be in the stadium at IGF or right here on 680 CJOB. I never used to worry about the weather forecast too much because 
while my weekend was whenever my weekend was. Now that I'm a Sunday through Friday guy, that Saturday forecast means everything to me, <laughs> and it's not looking very good right now. No. Greg Mackling in for it sucks. myself, Tristan Field-Jones in for Brett McGarry and Carolyn Clausen doing a fine job of being herself, and I think we're going to turn over the entire production and the running of the show uh, yeah. to Carolyn next week, so you've, don't. you've got three hours to plan next week, Carolyn. Well, 15 hours in total, so good luck. Get started. Oh my, that sounds like hard work, and you guys do work hard, I know that. Yeah, we, we but you know, and it's fun, and you know, we work when we're not working, even when we're not yeah. here. We're working right we're always thinking about content and and uh, reaching out in the community and meeting people and talking to individuals yep. hosting events I, I hosted an event on Sunday night I left my house at 4 30 I didn't get home until 10 o'clock you know uh, these are the things that we do as a part of our job you're not punching the clock for that it's just one of the things that's expected but when you get a vacation day when you get a holiday and you're planning that holiday it's critical and we're learning that it is imperative that we take these times because not only is it good for your mind, it's good for your actual human body, your 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 actual it's, person. It's powerful, right? I was looking at some literature as I was getting ready for today, and they, they did some research where they looked at one group of women who took vacations every six years or less, so hardly ever took vacations, and they compared those women to women who took vacations at least twice a year. And the risk of heart incidents where they might have a heart disease, develop heart disease, have a heart attack, or die of a coronary related cause, the difference was a factor of eight. People wow. were eight times, women were eight times more likely to have a cardiac event or cardiac disease when they didn't take vacations. At all, that's, really? Yeah, that's not surprising Compared at all. to twice a year. Yeah. And that's a that's a powerful statistic, right? Like vacations make our life longer. Uh, vacations can disrupt unhealthy sleep patterns when we take a break from, you know, sometimes you get into that where you're really stressed and you're working really hard and you're not sleeping well because of the projects the next day. And you go on vacation for a week or two and you get back to sleeping well, sleeping an extra hour or two at night even. And then when even when you get back to work, you can maintain that sleep pattern from your vacation. And so now you're working, but you're sleeping better than you were before. And we know that when you sleep better, you work better. Carolyn, I have to ask, we, along the, the same lines, we mentioned sick days briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, before the break, I was saying uh, I have no issue taking sick days. If, even if I'm you know, slightly under the weather, I have no issue doing that. I can hear everyone in the newsroom yelling at the speaker right now. We know, Tristan. <laughs> <laughs> they probably, yeah, exactly. Although on a more serious note, I did have, uh, I did have pneumonia earlier this year mm-hmm. and I was not messing around with that. I figured I'm taking, I'm entitled to a certain number of sick days. I'm taking as many as I need because I don't want to mess around with that. But it is a health issue though. Like if you're, even if you've only got a slight cold, especially when you work in a collective environment where we share the microphones or the keyboards or whatever it may be, it is a health issue if you are a bit sick and you aren't taking that sick day because you feel invaluable or you, or you feel as if you're being lazy by doing so. How do we change people's mentality when it comes to that? Because that's the way I approach it. I think, you know, I might technically be good enough to work, but I won't be as productive. And it's not fair to my colleagues mm-hmm. because I might be exposing them to a virus. Well, and I think it's interesting, Tristan, how empathic you are in recognizing that you're not the sole person at the workplace, that your being at work when you're sick affects other people in multiple ways. Um, and I like how you're sort of able to take a well-rounded approach to this and sort of and give yourself permission to say, if I'm sick, I can use the sick time allotted that is given to me for when I'm sick. 
And I think everybody has to decide what they're able to function when they're sick and, and when it's time, to, what, what their comfort level is in terms of when they have a cold, at what level it makes sense to call in sick. But I think we have to recognize and give ourselves permission that it, it, we don't get an extra badge of honor for showing up and dragging ourselves in when we're sick, that when we stay home and we take care of ourselves and we drink fluids and get lots of rest, that actually what we're fighting can more effectively be fought um, when we give ourselves permission to recover from things. And, and in general, I think it's important for us to recognize that um, that rest is just as important in the rhythm of life as work is, and that we work better when we take the time to rest. Some people look at their nose at uh, France, Spain, Australia, some of these places where... The, the Netherlands, too. I believe they have the shortest work week on average in the world. Uh, and I think Sweden's trying to get down to 30 or 32-hour work week in, in the next decade or so. Uh, but these are countries, we think we've got it pretty good here. But there are countries in the world that have a higher standard of living sure. than Canada does, that have longer life expectancy rates, have uh, healthier societies, and they demand and they mandate, to, you know, like sometimes four, five, six weeks of vacation. And I know in Australia, every five years, you're entitled to take like a two-month sabbatical or something crazy like that. There I am, adding my own vernacular to it. Crazy. There, it's just part of the culture. It's normal. Well, and I think what we're recognizing in some of those studies, we always, it's sort of a paradoxical thinking where the, the, the idea is that the more you're at work, the more you'll get done. And what people are realizing in some of those countries and what some of the other studies are saying is that when you work less, that when you go to work, you actually get more done in less hours because you're more productive. And when people are rested, they're more innovative and creative. They have better ideas. They're, they find more effective and strategic ways of solving problems. Ernst & Young conducted an internal study of its employees and found that for each additional 10 hours of vacation time employees took, their year-end rating performance ratings improved 8%. And then more frequent vacationers were significantly less likely to leave the firm. And so then you could be stay more productive when you didn't have to orient new, therapy, uh, new uh, employees. When you're more productive, you're happier, and when you're happier, you excel at what you do. And so I think it's it's helpful for us all to recognize that vacation, and, and we're not talking about lavish vacations necessarily to Cuba. I think what you were talking about is taking a long weekend where you spend a day yep. visiting with people who you otherwise wouldn't see. That is a vacation. Staycations are legitimate vacations, right? The mm -hmm. idea is to take time away from work, to rest and to play. And Dr. Stuart Brown, who is a psychiatrist, and he researches play in the United States, he says that the opposite, we often think of the opposite of play as work. He says the opposite of play is depression. Very interesting. And then that's a good way of looking at it too, because I believe there's an old uh, Chinese proverb that says, uh, if you enjoy the work, uh, what is it? If you enjoy your job, you will never have to work a day in your life. And uh, I, I subscribe to that. Australia, New Zealand, it's called long service leave after 10 years with one employer entitled to a two-month paid holiday in addition to your regular okay. uh, vacation on a yearly basis. Some scary uh, uh, text messages here before we go. Uh, how about this? Adam says, I work in his electrician. We get zero sick days and our three-week holidays are paid out on every check. I work with guys that have not taken a holiday in over 10 years and everyone comes to work sick because they don't get paid unless they get sick. Now, how about this text message? I'm 57, and all the years I worked, I only took one week vacation. I answered back, 
one week per year or one week ever? The answer just came in, ever. Wow. This looks like something we might have to revisit. It's sobering, and and, it, and I think when people recognize the value of vacation, I think it's going to challenge us all to create space where we have discussions and encourage each other to take rest, to take play, to, um, to do all of that seriously uh, so that we can be a healthier and more productive culture. Carolyn Clausen, you can connect with her. We are wired for connection. I've learned that from you over the last couple of years. Carolyn, connectsuscounseling.ca if you'd like to get in touch. Tristan Field-Jones filling in for Brett McGarry. He's going to slide into the news booth and deliver global news and weather at the top of the hour. We also have traffic information coming up starting in about eight, nine minutes time. It's Greg Mackling along with Tristan Field-Jones. Savannah Piers uh, suddenly got very much less attractive. <laughs> Kyle Milroy is in the house. Get those headphones on, man. Oh, my word. We never get to work with you. What's going uh, you on, You know, brother? it's funny. I was, I was joking with Kyle that he would hate this hour. I already do. Well, there <laughs> it is. Mission accomplished. Good night, folks. It's been nice. Happy to be aboard. Now, All I right. only mention this because... Do you know how beloved you are by the listenership, Kyle? Oh, my. I have a text message in the text message uh, file here. Uh-huh. Someone asking, concerned that you weren't on, oh, working with nice. Jeff Courier today, wanted to know where you were, wanted to make sure you were all right. I am A-OK. And so it's just with Bomber Day, Game Day coverage, Kyle has been little, so uh, kind not to force our friend Jeffrey Forche to work from about 9 o'clock in the morning until 12 o'clock tonight. He would do it, but I I, I, I took one for the team. For well, you're, you're a good man, Kyle, and uh, anytime we get Happy to work to with aboard. you, even if it's only for 52 minutes, uh, we will absolutely take it and run with it. So we'll we appreciate make the most it. Of it all right? We're going to put you to work in just a few minutes because we have Nickelback tickets to give away. I was just going to say, I think that text that I was wondering about where Kyle was, I, I'm pretty sure you also mentioned that Kyle owed him money. <laughs> He was concerned that maybe Kyle had lost his job and then wouldn't be able to repay the loan. Is that where you're going with this, Tristan? Any comment on that, Kyle, or is that... uh, Uh, No comment. Okay, there we go. There it is. Or maybe that texture was his wife. I mean, who knows? (laughs) Kyle, you still hate the hour? He's loving the hour. I'm I'm getting used to it. (laughs) Tristan, you're... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Frugal's not quite right. But you're very careful with your money. I'm financially prudent. Financially prudent. There we go. Yes, very much so. We're going to talk a little bit about finance in about 24 minutes time. Yes. Uh, But in the meantime, have you seen this story? The CFIB commends Visa and MasterCard's decision to allow merchants limited surcharging. Way to read the headline, Mackling. Limited surcharging powers. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business is praising announcements from Visa and MasterCard that they will soon allow merchants the power to levy limited surcharges when accepting credit card payments from consumers. For several years, CFIB, uh, that's the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, called on the credit card industry to allow merchants to surcharge some or certain types of credit cards, such as premium cards, in order to provide merchants additional powers to address their rising cost. How do you feel about this? I know that uh, uh, Julian Richard uh, spoke with uh, CFIB President Dan Kelly yesterday, but uh, you and I had an off-air conversation about this. I spoke to my buddy out west who owns uh, a business, and and he thinks it's kind of weak. 
that you would you would I understand I, once again I always have to qualify this before the phone lines light up that I'm anti-business or something I'm an entrepreneur I've owned businesses I've been in the restaurant business for a long time but mm-hmm. you know what we've been promoting for a long time the acceptability of credit cards as a way to promote our business and to grow business to make it more convenient easier for people to spend money in our businesses now we're at this tipping point it seems as though we're not quite as in love with the idea of people using plastic versus cash well and it's funny you ask me that greg because i'm a bit of an oddball when it comes to this actually you could have probably just ended it at oddball <laughs> anyway i didn't say that you said no it. you were thinking it and i agree but the reality is that i use uh, cash i prefer using cash whenever I can, especially for smaller purchases, because for me, just having the physical bills and dollars in my hands reminds me, um, uh, it reminds me of how much I'm actually spending. It kind of adds a weight to the fact that those aren't just numbers, that's actual money, because frankly, it's real easy, especially in this digital age, when you just see those numbers in your bank account or those numbers on that bill you might be looking up online. It's so easy to forget that, you know, that's actual, real, tangible money. It means something. Uh, So I like doing that. Um, This Now, I do, okay, I do, of course. Do you have a credit card? I, of course I do, yeah. Okay, what do you use it for? Emergencies strictly or indulgences? What do you use it for? It, it depends. Usually it's for bigger purchases. Uh, so, for instance, if I had a lot of groceries to buy, uh, I'll I'll use it for that. Uh, you know, I had a couple costly car repairs recently, uh, so that was where it came in. But it's it's, it's generally for stuff that's over a hundred bucks, let's say. Okay, so merchants pay anywhere from two to three to four percent mm-hmm. when you use your credit card. Do you feel as though that's your responsibility to pick up and make up the gap versus people pay cash because you're more expensive as a customer than someone who pays cash on a regular basis? Or is this plain and simply a cost of doing business and something that that businesses ought to eat? I I see both perspectives. Uh, I mean, if it costs them something, if if a business is required to pay fees to the credit card uh, to the credit cards for them to have that service, you know, a lot of people, a lot of organizations uh, will pass those costs along to the consumer. I mean, you see that all over the place. Uh, it just costs in general. I mean, if they have to pay for something. And so if if small businesses, let's say your local grocery store decided to do that with MasterCard and Visa, I would not, obviously I wouldn't be particularly happy about it, but having said that, I wouldn't grumble too hard because I know that they are in fact paying for those services. So what's going to happen in... 18 months when hydro's gone up 15% and now all of a sudden you're going to you're going to see like a a 2% uh hydro we have to keep the lights on levy isn't that a cost of doing business and exactly what i was about to say is on the flip side you're in business boohoo take a break and we love business owners we love entrepreneurs we'd like to get your uh feedback on this it's a it's a challenge and something that's a moving target because of these reward cards Mm -hmm. that do charge a higher user fee back to the merchant and so the merchants do get caught in the middle mastercard and visa say hey yeah get a free vacation you can build money towards a car but guess who they're doing it on the back of Of typically it is the merchants it's not out of the generosity of their own pocket maybe after paying all those fees instead of paying those fees you could have actually bought a cruise instead or something like that. Justin, did you do the story in your news at the top of the hour about a moose being spotted near Neverville? Actually, I don't think I did it. uh, Actually, I did do it early. No, that's something else. No. (laughs) 
I mean, my, You're confused. I, you had another moose story? No, I had another. Ni- there was another Niverville story. The moose was seen near oh, Niverville. Yes, there was a stabbing, right? Yeah, to right. The, so, uh, no, was, it's. Okay, that, well, this comes from uh, our, our uh, Global News uh, website. Lorraine Nickel just posted this within the hour. A moose has been spotted in a very strange place. Several residents have seen it wandering through farmers' fields and yards just off Highway 59 between Otterburn and Niverville. Photographer Christine Moran captured it with her dad's, uh, or in her dad's cornfield just outside Otterburn on Monday. And then Wednesday, just off Highway 59, a couple miles south of Niverville. It seems to be moving north along the highway. I've never seen a moose here before. It's definitely strange. Manitoba Conservation said they are keeping tabs on where the moose goes and warning drivers in the area to keep an eye out for it in case it goes onto the highway. Hitting a moose can result in serious injuries. Serious injuries, that's a kind way of putting it, even death. Those things, how how heavy are those things? I don't know. You're the one brought it up. A uh, couple thousand pounds? Maybe? I would imagine probably close to a ton, if not heavier. What's a ton? 2,500? I think so. Okay. I'm going to look it up. Uh, uh, what's the strangest animal, strangest thing you've seen on the road? Strangest? Because, I mean, you've been all over. Yes. You've been all over North America on the highway, have you not? True. Yeah, actually, we've been to, uh, uh, yeah, as I've mentioned this before, I did some storm chasing in the U.S., so we made it as far south as Kansas. What is the strangest animal we've seen on the road? Hmm. The, the craziest I saw was in northern Texas. In the mm-hmm. middle of the night, it was driving from Dallas to Denver through the night, and uh, like a family of armadillos. <laughs> oh, really? On the highway. Had to come to a screeching halt. Moose are, here's from Don, moose are 1,200 to 3,000 pounds. Oof. Yeah. So you don't want to hit one. That is pretty much the weight of your car, isn't it? Yep, pretty much. Yeah, okay. That's well, the uh, higher end of that scale for sure. Right? Yeah. Wow. So keep your eye, if you're on Highway 59, there is a moose on the loose, not to make a joke about it. I'll have to, you know what, I have to get back to you, Greg. I have to think, what is the strangest animal I've seen on the side of the road? Because, yeah, I'll have to get back to you on that one. All right. They don't have strange, uh, Jayhawk maybe? I've seen bears at the side of the road before, but that's probably not particularly strange. I don't know. I'm through standing in line, the clubs will never get in, it's like the bottom of the night. We're not having a conversation again. We're just going to give away tickets to see Nickelback. They're coming to Winnipeg in September. We have two tickets available to the first caller who can tell her, tell her, tell Kyle the answer to this question. I just have to find the question. Here okay. it is. The video for Rockstar, that's the song you're hearing now, features dozens of celebrities. It uses a baseball analogy... But it features which hockey legend? 204-780-6868. If you want to go see Nickelback, this is a telephone contest. You must you must call. Your texts are no good here. 204-780-6868. Which hockey star, hockey legend is featured in the video for Nickelback's song, Rockstar? Greg Mackling, usually with Brett McGarry. Brett is on vacation. Tristan is here. Filling his Brett's very large shoes in a mm. in a fantastic way. Brett's got big feet. He has very big feet. You know yeah. what they say about guys with big feet? I don't know. What do they say? Big shoes. That's all I'm going to say. Um, right. 
Kyle Milroy is uh, on the other side of the phone. He wants to give away those Nickelback tickets. We want to send you to see Nickelback, whether you love them or not. Making our way through the afternoon. What are we going to talk about uh, after 3.35? Are you worried about debt, Greg? I should be more worried about it than I am. Well, uh, I will say this. We have a really interesting survey about, you know, we've heard a lot about how Canadian consumers are taking on a lot of debt. And yet doesn't seem to bother a few people. Well, we only spend about $167 for every $100 of disposable income we have. What's the problem in that? Well, we'll see what happens with that. We'll see what the survey has to say about Canadians' attitudes towards debt. We uh, have to update the weather. Are we doing traffic now or just traffic now? I- I'm not sure Just weather now. Works. Just weather now. We'll take a pause as we make our way through the afternoons, Greg and Tristan. Cal Milroy, you might have to get rid of the kiss music beds after... Learning that essentially Gene Simmons wants to trademark the I love you sign for, he yeah. thinks it's like a rock and roll thing, but did he not do his research? It means I love you, right? I think. In I, American Sign know, Language. I'll have to look that up, Greg. It's, I don't the, know, but. it's your full hand with your two middle fingers, your ring finger, and your middle finger down. Somebody text message said, uh, I know what sort of hand gesture I'd like to put a trademark on. <laughs> And get a little bit of money every single time somebody used it. You yeah. would be very, very, stand very in, rich. Stand in rush hour traffic and uh, watch your dollars come through. <laughs> exactly. Hey, uh, just really quickly before we talk about uh, debt burden, Regina Molina, uh, who authored this uh, study on uh, debt and uh, optimism surrounding debt, uh, is standing by. Regina, hang tight. We just want to play for you audio from the House of Commons in Ottawa. We've been talking about Churchill. We talked about it extensively yesterday. And we've also been asking the questions out loud. What happens to what has to happen and in what order for this to be officially an emergency? Does the municipality have to ask the province to declare an emergency, and then does the province go to the federal government? And as we saw in Fort McMurray, there seems to be a sequence and needs to be a sequence of events. Nikki Ashton, the MP for the area, stood up in the House of Commons this afternoon. Here was her question to the Transport Minister, Mark Garneau, and his answer. Mr. Speaker, Churchill, Manitoba is facing a crisis. Almost a year ago, the port was shut down, and now it's the rail line. The community is suddenly isolated. Businesses are hurting. People are worried. We need immediate federal action. What Churchill is facing is a national disgrace. Our North deserves better. So will the federal government step in to address the immediate crisis and finally work to renationalize the port and the rail line and work with northern and indigenous communities to get it working again? Minister of Transport. Speaker, we, uh, as the government, always stand ready to provide assistance to any uh, province or territory that requests assistance in the event of a natural disaster such as flooding, and the Minister of Public Safety has been in contact with the government of Manitoba to make that uh, offer clear to them, and we're monitoring the situation. And from the Transport Canada point of view, we are uh, developing a plan to make sure that both the port of uh, Churchill and the airport are capable of addressing the needs with respect to resupply for the people of Churchill. Encouraging words there from Minister Garneau in the fact that he's talking about whether or not the airport can handle 
what would be delivered and how it might be delivered. We know that there's about a 10,000 foot runway up at Churchill, Julie Buckingham, helping me do some research on that this afternoon to figure out where uh, Churchill would rate in terms of that. And of course they have the port itself Mm -hmm. and also minister Garneau alluding to the fact that the province needs to ask for federal assistance in order for that to take place. More on this story as we make our way through the afternoon. Uh, Bombers uh, coverage starts at six o'clock. Richard and Judy, Julie, Four to six. So, Greg, we mentioned this briefly just before uh, the news here. Um, are you concerned at all about debt? You said you probably should be a little bit more. Um, I am probably in the same boat as you. I'm not too concerned about it, but maybe I should be a little bit more. Well, guess what? According to a new study done by Equifax Canada, despite all the gloom and doom when it comes to debt, a lot of us, especially millennials and seniors, are surprisingly optimistic about the future. We have Regina Molina, who's the report's lead author. She joins us now. Good afternoon to you. How's it going? Good afternoon. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me here. So here's what I found particularly surprising about this report. We hear about debt all the time in the news. We hear financial advisors. I mean, here on CJOB, how many times have we had the uh, National Bank financial guys say debt is an issue, we need to worry about it. And yet... Regina, in spite of this, in spite of all that, this study you guys have done says people are still pretty optimistic. What's going on there? So there are two sides to the story here. Uh, people are, I wouldn't say that they're feeling pessimistic about their current state, but they're fairly reserved about their opinions. So when they look at where they are today and how concerned they are about their debt today, there is some there is some concern on their part. For example. 50% of Canadians or majority say that they're actually concerned about their ability to pay off their debt. Where the optimist come into a pic- optimism comes into the picture is the future outlook. And that's uh, exemplified by the fact that millennials seem to be less concerned than, uh, say, people my age in their 40s and early 50s. Uh, yes, it's actually very interesting. Um, the optimistic view about the future, while it's elevated for everyone, is uh, perfectly correlated with the debt levels. Uh, millennials mm. and seniors have lower debt levels, and so they show the most optimism. The age group of 45 to 54, which has the highest level of debt, is actually the uh, least optimistic about the future. I guess that's really not surprising when you think about it, right? Yes, it's not, but it's nice to see the numbers paint the picture very clearly and and prove this hypothesis. Uh, Regina, we had a conversation earlier in our program about the cost of real estate, in particular in Vancouver and Toronto, and our market here in Winnipeg. And new home buyers are faced with, first-time home buyers are faced with, A, a lot of onerous obstacles that they have to get through and overcome in terms of down payment, uh, different qualification methods from the banks, uh, CMHC insurance, etc., different thresholds, uh, you name it, it's a lot different than when uh, I bought my first house just 14 years ago. Uh, Things have changed dramatically. And I've also read the idea that that obstacle is turning into, for millennials, a different philosophy about home ownership. In fact, a lot are taking pride in the fact that they're renters and they have a lot more options in terms of their lifestyle, in terms of job mobility. Does this play into this survey at all? And if not, uh, maybe you have a take on it. Absolutely. It's actually a very interesting uh, point. Going into the study, we kept an open mind and wanted to 
confirm or deny that exact hypothesis because I myself have been exposed to a lot of uh, studies or conversations or just uh, opinions that that's the case. But when we surveyed um, Canadians, we discovered that the younger generations, 18 to 24, 25 to 34 age groups, they, they really want to own a home, without a doubt. They, they want to own a home as much as the previous generations. Uh, these are very high percentages of people who think that uh, ownership of the home is a great investment. So um, I, I have my doubts about this hypothesis. There might be a few more people than before who take pride uh, the, the, uh, the way you described it, but I think we're going to have to get creative uh, with uh, with how we move forward because they're gonna they're gonna try to get into the market at one point. And on, on a similar note to that as well, uh, in, in spite of the fact that uh, a lot of people believe home ownership is very important, uh, Regina, it looks as if for people who don't own a home, the percentage is a little bit lower when it comes to um, if they ever think they'll be able to afford one. Absolutely. And that's where uh, the concern uh, is coming in. Those that don't own a home, uh, as you mentioned, 51 percent don't think they'll ever be able to own a home. And 78 percent actually, they don't have it because they don't want it. They, in most cases, they don't have it because they can't afford it. So the, the higher prices, uh, and it's great that we have low interest rates, but the higher prices in some of the uh, uh, urban areas, especially Toronto and Vancouver, and the income levels that are not increasing in par with increasing prices are definitely having an impact. Regina, lots of interesting facts in this study, and I know you'll be uh, authoring more studies along this line. Please uh, join us again. Thank you very much. That is Regina Molina. She's the lead author of the Equifax Canada study. Despite all the doom and gloom about debt, a lot of us, especially millennials and seniors, are optimistic about the future. Again, if you look up Equifax Canada, you should be able to find the study. Some really interesting numbers there. And yet, in spite of the way we're shifting our lifestyles, homeownership is still, by a vast majority of people, homeownership is still considered very important. Very important, yet it is less attainable for more people. And so then you might see the shifting values, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. the reality has to become your priority. And, right. and you have to realize that it just may not happen for me. We'll take a pause. We have to update traffic. We have to update weather. And then we'll welcome Richard and Julie because their program is only two hours today. Right. It's one third shorter than it normally is. We're going to give them one third less time to talk about what they have coming up on the news. Cindy Guybe is going to see Nickelback at uh, MTS Center Place Thing Bell Arena downtown. Going to she, the show. She knew that Wayne Gretzky was the hockey player, the hockey superstar, who was uh, part of the Rockstar video shoot along with uh, uh, several handfuls of other mm-hmm. celebrities. Now, since your show is uh, an hour shorter, we decided to give you only two-thirds as much time to talk about what you have on your show I was going to say, speaking today. of celebrities, Richard Kluche and Julie Buckingham are And here. this is becoming a uh, commonplace thing, Richard. You walking in here looking like about a half a million dollars. You're looking great again today. What were you doing earlier? It's buttering me up, I think, for, for something. something at some point. I need uh, a small loan. I had the, uh, <laughs> the honor with, uh, with Mitch Rossett over at uh, Global 
role of uh, hosting the kickoff for the Manitoba Marathon and Investors Group field. For those who are participating or spectators at the Manitoba Marathon this Sunday, it finishes inside Investors Group field. So it'll be the Thunderdome uh, if there's any rain on the course. Well, you deal with that, but uh, you're covered inside Investors Group field. So that'll be fun. And we'll be announcing you as you come in and finish your you various will races. Not be announcing me, unfortunately, but I understand where you're coming from. There is a global team. Uh, there's some CJO beers doing this as well, but uh, a lot of a lot of fun. You can follow it uh, on my Instagram account, uh, Richard K. Kluche. Julie T. Buckingham. Am no. I close? No, L. 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 Okay. For luscious L. Buckingham. What, uh, what have you got going on here? How about lovely. What do you got going on here until well, 6 o'clock leading up to Blue Bomber football? We have uh, a lot more. We will talk to Bob Irving to, to tee up the what? show. He said he would absolutely not come on our show this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will also have uh, David Papp on. We'll talk about a couple of changes in the electronics industry. As I get set to unlock my phone before I go to Europe, I may want to hold off because it seems that those companies are not going to be able Humble to bread. charge the uh, 50 bucks. In order, what do you mean unlock it? I, I hear people talk about that. I don't even know what that means. Well, when you're on, when you have a plan yes. through a network, you are your phone is locked. If you were with MTS, you're locked on MTS. If you're with Rogers, you're locked to Rogers. Okay. Oh, the, the, if the, I take the phone my is sim- connected to the correct. The, the, if the, I take the, my the SIM provider. card out and give it to somebody that's not on the same network, phone right. doesn't work. So Got come it. December first, you will not be able. Your cell phone provider will not be able to charge you to unlock it. Got so it. there's some different rules coming, and we'll talk about that. And a liberal report that was dissed by the liberal government today as far as internet taxes are concerned. Instantaneously. But I am passionate about one of the recommendations, and that has to do with the people's network or the so-called people's network. Well, you actually, you looked snarky there when you said it's that. A little bit. Did I sound snarky? Yeah, and you, it yeah. was good. And I, some, I like it. And some homework for the kids on this cusp of being the end of school we are going to send you to the red river x animals at the x we need to know what certain baby animals are called oh i like that that's good okay that's going way back goat as a kid right for example what is a baby llama called that's one of them just a llama no a baby lamb what's a baby pig called brett mcgarry oh i'm so sorry I can't believe you said that. Oh, taking the easy shots when someone's not yep, here. You can't do that, Tristan. Mm. Oh, yeah, no, I can. No, no, Richard Cluche, Julie Buckingham. I say that as a, as a good fr- I should say, I'm a. He's I'm in the a, building, I'm, by the way. Is he really? Oh, yeah, I'm, turning, I'm turning off your microphone now, Tristan. You're you can't digging do that yourself to me. a hole you cannot get out of. Kyle Milroy on Master Control for at least an hour. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, Blue Bomber football starts at 6 o'clock with the one and only Bob Irving, Doug Brown, and a cast of at least three or four other people here on 6. 680 CJB. Tristan and Greg will be back tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB.